Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Welcome. It is Beyond the Vote. It's that podcast about the world of American politics. Boy, it gets more exciting each and every week. Uh, and, and we're here to talk about it each and every week. I'm your host, Riley Blanton. So glad you've joined us. Episode 8. We're almost at like a small mini anniversary. We'll get to episode 10 shortly here. Uh, and joining me as always is my good friend and yours, Mr. Scott Rifen. Hello. How's it going, Scott? Wonderfully. Excellent. 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 How was your fine Sunday? Um, you believe it or not, I spent most of the day podcasting. So. Oh, really? What have yeah. you been up to? Uh, we're doing a retrospective on the Star Wars radio drama. Oh, or the cool. expanded fandom burst. So excellent, excellent. Yeah, it's been uh, a lot of fun. Uh, absolutely, I know of top priority and interest to all of the <laughs> audience to this 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 small but budding podcast. Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, actually, uh, yeah. It's just pardon my my moment to t- to catch up with you. Uh, but yeah, no, it's uh it's been quite an interesting week of politics. Quiet on the election front, but that doesn't mean that the cycle isn't still. Uh, uh, trundling ahead, but there's been since Trump has been a little bit more subdued in the last two weeks, uh, at least I guess comparatively so. It's actually given me time to uh, put together some notes on actually I think some things of interest with the election uh, cycle that go beyond just what Trump's saying this week, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, which is rare, very rare, all too rare. Um, and I'm very excited because I already have queued up for the end music. Whenever we get done here. Uh, about half an hour or so, we're going to uh, hear uh, what is the best performance, the Berlin Symphony Orchestra, 1962, of uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Because in the craziness of this election cycle, I find myself, both the, both the election cycle and finals coming up, always have me turning to classical music. So, and you find yourself full of joy, I assume. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> At least uh, in the music, maybe not in anything else. But uh, but yeah, we got a lot. We've got a lot to cover. We're gonna we're gonna touch on the the uh, the rigged uh, presidential <laughs> process, as as Donald Trump is complaining. Oh, please. We're gonna talk about the electoral college. Uh, we're gonna talk about and 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 finally, what I'm most looking forward to on the program uh, is we're gonna talk about Paul Ryan. Uh, <laughs> I have uh, in many ways. I have a fiscal. I have a spiritual. And I have, dare I say, a physical infatuation with Paul Ryan. Uh, so. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> so we'll get to all of that. Which uh, bathrooms do you use in North Carolina? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's one topic that we're not going to talk about. Actually, I thought about it, but uh, but let's start with this. Um, let's start with this because even what's funny is that. In the stump speeches and on Twitter, uh, Trump's message this the past two weeks, I, I think, tell you a lot about what his campaign thinks of his chances to win 1,237 delegates. Mm-hmm. So uh, his message has actually been a little bit more consistent, and he's railing against what he's calling the rigged presidential nomination process. It's rigged. He's yeah. being gypped. If you'd only read it when it was in the newspapers eight months ago, uh. <laughs> you know, that's the thing that is really starting to show in the Donald Trump campaign. We knew that they were running an outsider campaign. We just didn't realize that they weren't making any attempt to learn anything about the campaign from the inside. Uh, and, and what we've seen in a number of instances now, starting with Colorado, is that Donald Trump and his organization have no idea how the presidential primary system actually works. Hmm. And that's frightening. Yeah. And it's like they've not even made an effort to find out. 
Yeah, the in fact, I was reading up today, the cruise campaign is, is absolutely dominating every one of these processes. In fact, yesterday, as we record this, uh, Saturday the 16th, uh, another sweep in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, he picked off a bunch of delegates in Louisiana. He's, he's really the ground game. And, and it's, this isn't just ground game. This is organization. This is phone calls. This is talking to local you know, Republican Party uh, me, you know, members in, in small counties of states. This is knowing people. And it's using um, the ground game well. And so I think what's interesting to me is that uh, he's gone through and fired all of his state campaign uh, personnel. As he wins a state, he's like, well, we're done. And, and so it shows an enormous amount of incompetence, at least on the uh, delegate hunt side of things. It's, it's, it's surprising. And he's, finally, and he's been really slow to respond, too. Uh, but he is setting up, I think, what, right now, what the campaign is setting up is uh, the appeals process. So this is what people aren't really talking about. But the Republican National Committee does have an appeal process to question whether a state's um, nomination of delegates is legitimate, and I think that's the argument they're setting up. Because if if he's not at twelve thirty seven, we're going to know it going into the convention. So that's when the real uh, finagling of the delegates goes forward. Mm-hmm. But I will say this too: um, there's something about. Uh, all right, I, I'm going to briefly touch on this. Um, when, it, when we look at the delegate math, even if he wins all every last delegate in New York, he still has to do exceedingly well for the remaining New, Eng- uh, remaining New England states and Pennsylvania and do exceedingly well in California just because his, the delegate math for him has actually been hurt in the last few weeks with the Cruz campaign effort. So it's, it's looking like a contested convention, and I, honestly— I say bring it. I think that uh, it'll. I'm not the John Kasich. It'll be so exciting. We'll see how the presidential process works. <laughs> no, um, it'll be nerve wracking. Is what it'll be. What gets me about the whole it? It's literally the man who says that he he's going to hire all the best people to solve all the best problems and make cut all the best deals, failing at every single one of those things. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a, it it's not a good look. Uh, and and I feel like the more he complains and whines about it not being fair, the more he hurts his image as a capable, uh, you know, commander of his business if he's running his campaign like a business. But maybe that, that might not be the case with his supporters. That might be the case that people think he's being gypped. No, I was going to say. And then on the other hand, his, his diehard supporters are in the tank. With him, no. screaming the exact same thing. It's rigged. It's set up. It's a cheat. It's phony. You know, the thing that kills me is they started this with Colorado. And the day, the Monday after this whole thing came up, I, I did a little tiny bit of research, little itty bit of research. Uh-huh. And I found the news article from the Denver Post from last August that explained exactly how things were going to go and that there wasn't going to be a general vote of the populace because that's the way they decided to do it back in August. <laughs> now, if yeah, it took, and, well, and they've if, done it for many for like the past three or four election cycles. It took me less than five minutes to find this article on their decision as to how to run this election, this primary this time around. And if they had only done five minutes of work going into Colorado, they would have known this. Yeah, but they didn't. It's a it's no. a it's an astounding uh, level of incompetence. Uh, it, but you know, uh, he he's hiring. Oh, I forget the da- the name of the fellow who um, he's hired to really help get on the floor and try to wrangle. I, I think the the real campaign now is for Trump to get 
as much above 1100 as he can and then just uh, <laughs> beat the sweat and blood out of the rocks to just get up to 1237 on the first ballot. Because if he doesn't get it on the first ballot, he's not going to get it. Uh, yeah. There's no way. There's no way. And and so you have you have this kind of eternal weird confluence of personalities inside and outside the Republican Party and the conservative movement uh, who are counter Trump and they're they're screaming <laughs> poor Ryan Priebus going on all these television shows trying to talk about how this system is not in fact rigged and this is the way the rules work. Uh, but he's he's selling it all the wrong. Every time I see that man's smug face on TV, I want to sympathize with Donald Trump <laughs> because instead of saying, "Hey, Donald Trump is now at thirty-seven percent of the popular vote," also by the way, the lowest percentage of the popular vote at this stage in the process in dozens of election cycles. This is historic. It hasn't been this. Uh, he, there hasn't been a quote-unquote GOP frontrunner that's performed this badly in uh decades and so what's fascinating is that instead he can't really say that because if you're Reince Priebus it seems more likely that he will than he won't be the nominee so you can't go on television and say hey our system's giving you th- you're getting 37 percent of the popular vote but yet with these winner take all states you're at 45 percent of the delegates which means you only have to get you know about 60 percent of the remaining ones uh, but you can't make that case and uh Cruz can't make that case because he's never on tv <laughs> No, no, no. He was on Fallon last week. Uh, well, that's true. That's and true. he was quite good. You think? Uh, you think so? Yes. Uh, Absolutely. I, I, I was trying not to let my. Uh, he's by far the candidate I prefer, so I try not to let that cloud my interpretation. And it's just hard. He was good for Cruz. I don't know that he was good. You know what I mean? I no, I I disagree. I think he was. I think he was personable. Uh-huh. I think you know he talked about playing video games on his iPhone with his kids, and I think that humanized him a bit. I mean, the biggest he thing did Ted humanize himself, which is humanized. That's his biggest. Um, uh, that that's his biggest challenge. Yeah, and in fact, the fact the fact that he was sort of essentially. Maybe not exposed, but like the first bit is like, hey, let's look at your high school yearbook where it literally details your path to the presidency yeah. <laughs> and you've literally done everything, <laughs> which I thought was, by the way, just great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but I mean, that's that's kind of what it takes uh, to be president. You, you, unless you're Donald Trump, uh, you usually have the long term. Yeah long-term goal but yeah so we'll we'll keep an eye on this as it goes um a lot of this we're going to touch base again next week uh this week is the big new york primary uh and it looks like it's looking pretty likely that uh mr trump's going to get above 50 percent, which is like what he absolutely has to do to have still have a shot at 1237 if he falls below 50 percent, i think it's like an automatic loss of some level of delegates i don't know exactly how many uh, but if he gets over that magic 50% number, he pretty much, that means he sweeps everything. Um, let's talk about Ben Carson. Let's start, literally, let's talk about, this isn't, this is, this transcends uh, the, the good doctor. Uh, let's talk about conservatism. Because something happens, Scott. Something really strange, weirdly alien happens to somebody when they jump on the Trump train. Uh, and it manifests itself differently with different people. It could uh, make you realize suddenly in a grand, in heavenly epiphany that you've made a, a terrible mis- a mistake and you have to stand there awkwardly for 20 minutes 
well, <laughs> being literally the the very large and rotund bodyguard looking dude in Chris Christie, or in Ben Carson's case, mm-hmm. you could literally just go insane. <laughs> uh, ben Carson, uh, let's get rid of the Electoral College. Quote, we need to make some changes. He said, uh, man, this was yesterday. What, what program? He was, on, he was on, um, on Fox News. He said, we need to make some changes. Uh, uh, one of the reasons that this year, this is the year of the outsiders, is because people are so tired of the status quo and the rules that, are, that were arbitrary, created to advantage one group or another. The retired pediatric neurosurgeon told, uh, told Fox News. Whatever happened to, quote, we, we are the people, the American people. <clears throat> now, here's where it gets interesting. Let me be clear. Or like this makes it extraordinarily clear. It's not about Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or anybody else. It's about here it is. Here it is, Scott. It's about the system. Uh. When the electoral college was put in place, this is a direct quote. When the electoral college was put in place, a lot of people did not know what was going on. They had no idea who was running for what or what the situation was. That's changed significantly. What? Quote, quote, we have to have a situation in some states where, where, uh, where we have a situation, rather, in California, where you've basically negated the vote of a large group of people. They say, what is the point of what? this? If you're conservatives, why would you vote in the presidential election if your vote's not going to count? And you know it's going to go to the Democrats. Uh, what is he talking about? A lot of people are starting to realize that if we're going to keep the parties from being destroyed, we have to come out and vote in large numbers to prevent that from happening. Uh, ben, Car- I, I don't even have the exact quote uh, in front of me because he does go into further detail on the previous story I was reading about it, where Ben Carson goes on to say that that was the, that it was a different time, Scott. It, the it was it was a different time. The the electoral uh, college system is is just jipping the people's voice. Now, let me give a little 30-second civics lesson to everybody listening. Okay. He, said, um, he said, very frustrated, this is, uh, this is so simple and so important. The United States is a republic because with a direct democracy, which has really not happened with the exception of maybe ancient Greece, where you have a direct vote on policy issues, you elect representatives who can best uh, best represent your interests. And if they don't represent your interests well, then you elect different representatives uh, four or six years later. So yes. when this, when this, this also translates or to the Electoral College system where you want representation of both states and population. So when you're voting for president of the United States, it's extraordinarily important that you don't simply go with the popular vote. Uh, with the executive branch, and that is such a fundamental conservative value. I have no idea what's happened here. Help me, Scott. Uh, you're my only hope. What's, hap- <laughs> what's happened here is you've got a bunch of guys who are trying to figure out how they can recalculate the numbers so that they win, because they're not going to win through the conventional means. And so all of a sudden, yeah, we've got to attack the Electoral College, which, you know, they're not even we're not even close to that. No, yeah, now, the Electoral College has gotten problematic because... Uh, because of the apportionment of states and, and the apportionment of uh, the allotment of electoral votes, um, the population of, of California and New York being as large as they are and as overwhelmingly Democrat as they are mean that the Democrats have an advantage in any of the national elections just from the get-go if you're 
if you're going to calculate it using the Electoral College. But uh, it, it is the fairest of all the systems. It is, and it's not perfect, but uh, it's worked extraordinarily well for 200 years. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what – when we get to the fundamentals of like something like the Electoral College, uh, that's when you really under – I'm beginning – I'm beginning to question a whole lot, Scott, because this this whole never Trump thing, I sort of feel like it's a test of uh, conservative purity and how much you're willing to throw out conservative values to help your team win. Because here's the mm. thing. Uh, I don't vote for Republicans. I vote for principled conservatives. Sure. And it's not one and the same. Uh, and, and if anything, the last... 10 years of American politics should teach anyone who's a registered Republican that very lesson. And what's astounding is that that anger that many people have towards the Republican Party is what's driving someone who is, by pretty much every honest measure, not a conservative on pretty much every issue, or at least a questionable one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what, again, it kind of goes back to the whole Trump conversation in general. But it'd be, it's just fascinating to me. But we do need to remind ourselves he is at 37% of the vote. Of the 37% he's gotten, what percentage of those are people who actually truly uh, think he's a great conservative and the best choice? I, 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 I doubt it's everyone. I don't know exactly what that number would be. Mm. But, you know, that that's that's the thing. That's that's where we stand uh, right now. Paul Ryan. Yes. Uh, this is how we're going to close out the podcast, because I have thoughts. Uh, in fact, <laughs> Scott, I'm I'm very uh, I like I say, I have a, a big man crush on Paul Ryan on an, in a number of levels. This is until indev- inevitably he disappoints me. And, and then we have to and he uh, will. this, which is, of course, going to happen, especially yeah. if you're the Speaker of the House, because compromise is literally pretty much in the job description. So mm-hmm. uh, it's very difficult to stay a purist. However, I will say this. Paul Ryan is in the uh, in the few months. When was when was he appointed speaker? It was this. It was late it was last just, year. Uh, yeah, late last year, like November. Yeah. So he's been in like six, seven months, uh, and he already has ma- made public comments three times uh, on Donald Trump. All at I think very appropriate times when uh, Trump's rhetoric became especially divisive, and. The problem is, is that someone who's Speaker of the House coming forward and saying, well, I believe what you said there was uh, entirely divisive and inappropriate is exactly the, exactly the Mr. Howell cigar-smoking kind of language that infuriates a lot of the base. But the, the fact is I happen to agree with it. So, again, just being totally transparent. Here's the interesting thing, Scott. To give you a little bit of background, uh, my my man crush with with uh, Paul Ryan started a couple years ago with the Ryan budget, which, which he promoted in a series of YouTube when he was chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Yeah. Uh, and uh, like, man, he never made fiscal policy so sexy, uh, <laughs> because I think he had a fairly realistic uh, plan to, over the course of ten to twelve years, drastically reduce the the deficit uh, all the way, you know, out of the red, which would be like desperately, desperately needed. Uh, so that's kind of a little bit about my background. Yeah. But I recently, uh, last month, I finished a book. Um, I've mentioned it here on the program before. McKay Coppins, The Wilderness. Um, 
and it it had it, it focuses on all the different uh, candidates who ran or are running in the Republican uh, nominating process, and it really digs into uh, you know their process for making the decision whether or not to run, and it has a a really good, really really good chapter on Paul Ryan, uh, and it talks about the fallout of the 2012 election because there was a lot. Uh, and, and Scott, I wondered. I'd be interested to know how much you know or have followed it because this is there's there's getting in the political weeds, then there's getting like digging up the political weeds and looking under them, and that's what I'm about to do because there was a lot of drama in the uh, Ryan uh, Romney uh, ticket, mm-hmm. and it centered mainly on uh, the idea of fiscal policy and going after of urban and turning out urban uh, voters specifically making poverty part of the platform and it came to a head and there was a fundamental rift at the uh was it july august uh 47 percent comment Mm. and that was when the romney campaign said we cannot make poverty part of our platform because it's now delegitimized that no voter is going to take us seriously Mm. and paul ryan fundamentally disagreed he's like no that's just a comment people forget it if we make it a serious part of our platform to talk about conservative solutions for the 47 million people in the united states who are below the poverty line and how to lift them out of it and really really push the jack kemp the milton friedman uh style of uh capitalism as a solution and and deregulation as a solution to poverty uh, that's what we need to do. And he was ultimately shut down. And because he's Paul Ryan, he, he, he you know, uh, sh- sat down, shut up, and did what he was told. Because um, that's what you do. You're the vice president. You're not the president. And you need to stay yeah. on message. Granted, it, it was this gross characterization of Romney as this uh, evil, greedy, rich, out-of-touch uh, businessman that lost in the election, essentially. He was successfully painted as such amongst much of the electorate. So he lost. The the fallout of this means um, Paul Ryan is like, all right, well, this is now my issue. So in 2014, uh, there was a, he spent the entire year – this wasn't really in the press much, but he really spent the entire year meeting with high-profile uh, religious and heavily African-American and Democratic urban constituencies and large-scale uh, anti-poverty movement. There's a pastor in – Indianapolis, I forget. I think it's Daryl Hammond. I might have that wrong. That no, Daryl Hammond's on Saturday Night Live. No, see, see, I know <laughs> the names. It's something similar then. Uh, but point being is that he he met with a lot of um, he met with a lot of uh, people who normally Republicans aren't going after to talk to about how do we understand better the, this this problem. And it's something that uh, Paul Ryan is very intimately familiar with because when he was a young teenager. Uh, he found he he stumbled across his father uh, dead. His his dad uh, died yeah. as a young teenager, and that really informed. In fact, he received uh, uh, welfare benefits uh, during that time as he really helped take care of his family while his mom went off to college and tried to get a job and mm-hmm. take care of the rest of the Ryans. It's a really fascinating story. So poverty uh, means a lot, and he is a nerd. In fact, like fun fact, back in 1993. Uh, of course, the late Jack Kemp, uh, fresh off of his career in Congress uh, and a seat in the cabinet, uh, he's who as uh, I think most people listening to this would know, but he's sort of the heir apparent of Reagan's brand 
of optimistic conservatism. Yeah, he was, uh, and, and he was Reagan's HUD director. Exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah. And he had the advo- he started the advocacy group Empower America uh, at the time. And at the time, in '93, at the time, he hired as an economics assistant a 23 year old young uh, man from Wisconsin, uh, Paul Ryan. And so that kind of gives you a background of like who this guy is. So when fast forward to today, it's fascinating to me that as Speaker of the House, he is desperately trying to shift the message of the Republican Party in this direction and wield every amount of power that he can possibly do so. Uh, Because here's the thing, the welfare system is probably one of the biggest things that needs to be reformed. In fact, the earned income uh, tax credit. Yes. uh, Fun fact, 30% fraud and waste. That's that's 43% billion dollars just again i'm gonna get really wonky here sorry i'm I'm, this is very policy specific this is the political science nerd riley but think about this the deficit the last few years under the obama administration has averaged right around the half a trillion mark uh and it's gone it's gone way up and down uh, although it will be worse this year exactly and so it's because because the first six months of this fiscal year, we had record revenues to the Treasury again, mm-hmm. and yet the first six months of this year already we've run $461 billion in deficit. We're, so we're already where we were almost all of last year, because last yeah. year it was at right at $500 billion. So just to give you a picture, $50 billion is nothing to sneeze at. Like that's an enormous chunk of the deficit right there. And so he, years, he yeah. it, I mean, Paul Ryan has a, on speaker.gov a comprehensive list of policies he's trying to push uh, as a clear Republican alternative to uh, liberal Democratic policies that have been offered the last eight years. And in it, he, he details how we can transform the enormous waste and fraud on the national uh, with the IRS uh, with the earned income tax credit and a lot of other federal uh, welfare assistance programs and transform those into state level grants that states can implement on their own with their own economies that best fit their own population and unique cultures as was designed in the constitution so that they can address poverty uh, f- from a conservative state level platform. This is the kind of stuff that, yes, it's nerdy and it's not fun to talk about. It's way more fun to talk about how Melania Trump's hotter than Heidi Cruz, right? But this is the kind of stuff that a presidential election should be out. So to me, it's just absolutely hilarious that listen, the, the last thing I'm going to play and then I'm going to toss it to, uh, toss it to you, Scott, and get, get your thoughts on, uh, on like a couple questions I have after all of this long setup. Take a okay. listen to this, folks. Mm-hmm-hmm. There we go. What really bothers me the most of politics these days is this notion of identity politics, that we're going to win an election by dividing people rather than inspiring people on our common humanity and our common ideals and our common culture on the things that should unify us. We all want to be prosperous. We all want to be healthy. We want everybody to succeed. We want people to reach their potential in their lives. Now, liberals and conservatives are going to disagree with one another on that. No problem. That's what this is all about. So let's have a battle of ideas. Let's have a contest of whose ideas are better and why our ideas are better. And it goes to uh, speaker.gov slash confident America, which is his kind of initiative. And to me, and that's, Scott... That's the non-presidential ad that, that it, was running, yeah. And what's funny is that this was launched on 
that uh, page where you can see a lot of these policies that he's advocating for the current and upcoming Congress to push forward as conservatives, either with or without uh, a Republican presidency. And, and and recently this week, he came out to say, I double dog promise, pinky swear, I'm not running, <laughs> because yes, that's yes. literally how all of this has been interpreted, because everything he do- does is probably right, rightfully so interpreted in the presidential lens. Scott, series of questions, but let me just start with your overall reaction. Is it possible to... Is there a sliver of hope that the Jack Kemp, or more honestly, Milton Friedman style of free economics and conservatism to be a uniting part of the Republican platform in this election cycle, or is that already over? In this election cycle? Yes. That's going to be difficult, because this election cycle has already kind of defined itself as being about personalities. Um, It seems to me that if it were to become about that, Ted Cruz would be a guy who would be able to convey that. And he would be a guy who you'd be able to get on board with that premise. So I guess it's possible. But again, the problem is we are so deep in the hole with personalities that I don't know, I don't know that we can dig ourselves out in this cycle. Yeah, I don't think it's possible. This cycle, I don't think, uh, as much as I like the policies of Ted Cruz, uh, he he is not uh, he he lacks one critical element of politics, and that is just being likable. and And that's just, that's the unfortunate reality of being Ted Cruz, is that uh, for better or for worse, rightfully or wrongfully, he is. Not he is seen as someone who is not liked, uh, and yeah. people just want to like somebody before they it, want to listen to them. It's true, but I will tell you, every time he does a one-on-one appearance, he he batters down that wall. Uh, it, it's it's been fascinating to me because when you watch him one-on-one, and again, as as I mentioned with with uh, Jimmy Fallon the other night, he comes across as incredibly likable, but he doesn't get a lot of those opportunities. And unfortunately uh, it's, it's, it's kind of the way Sarah Palin, the image of Sarah Palin was created by Tina Fey. I think the image of Ted Cruz is created by Donald Trump. Yeah. Lion Ted. Yeah. Yeah. That's the interesting thing to me. And that's, that's where, as we're seeing the, the few actual policies, and I mean, actual policies that you can now, find on Donald Trump's website where he's actually detailed some of his border plans, some of his, his ideas, his tax plan, um, that you have some moderately okay semi-conservative solutions here. A lot of it I disagree with, and, and most of it he's contradicting himself. But the problem is, is that he's introducing them as a reluctant uh, requirement to run for president. It's like, well, I guess finally now I have to really, you know, now that we're looking like I'll be the nominee. I've, I guess I have to put out these weird policy proposal things. Where Paul Ryan has legitimately and unironically, without tons of press coverage, uh, it's not like he's he's not doing photo op uh, addressing poverty. He's not giving it lip, no. lip service. And and a lot of these meetings that he had with inner city, highly uh, democratic and often liberal uh, organizations is has really helped and informed his idea of some of these policies for actually enabling conservative solutions to poverty. So, uh we'll see. I, I mean, maybe 20, 20 maybe 2020 is the year that we can all have hope again. 
Uh, let's play a, le- a little brief excerpt because we're pretty much out of time. Let's take a quick listen to uh, Mr. Ted Cruz uh, on on Jimmy Kimmel, where he's being asked random questions. This is from March 31st, uh, and I actually kind of liked this clip. It was uh, it was pretty good. About you, I'm older than you are. Uh, you are. It's crazy to me that there are people running for president that I'm older than. Well, well I will say the the salt and pepper in the beard gives you a distinguished look. It's Thank a, you it's very a good much. look. I appreciate that. You're not going to put me on the Muslim watch list because of this, are you? <laughs> it's already done, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask him, because I feel like even though you were the first candidate to throw your hat in the ring, we don't know you. We know Donald Trump for many, many years. Um, we know who, who, who's that fella? <laughs> many, many years. Yeah. Well, Donald Trump, is he the person you dislike most of anyone in America? Oh, no. Who look, do you like look, better, Obama or Trump? Look, look, look. <laughs> His face. I dislike Obama's policies more. I see. Uh, but but Donald, uh, Donald is a unique individual. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say I was watching the early part of the show. And there it is, folks. Yep. Uh, that's Ted Cruz on Jimmy Kimmel. And, and yeah, I think he has the – if there is a chance of, of this happening, uh, of the, these kinds of conservative values uh, being put forth, he's probably in the best position to do it. But we'll just have to wait and see. Right now, he's in the position where he's unfortunately kind of playing into the stereotype that he's sort of a conniving fellow because it really plays into Donald Trump's narrative hands the yep. way he's going after delegates right now. But that's yep. the only way he's going to get the nomination. So, uh, wow. Well, you know what that sounds like? You know what this really means it's time for? No. A little <laughs> bit of calming music. I promised you folks that we would. Have a little bit of the old Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. This is um, conducted uh, by what was his face? Um, by the it's the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, and it's Herbert von Karajan, nineteen sixty-two. An excellent, excellent rendition. If you're a classical music nerd like me, so I think that's the best way to go out for this week's podcast, ladies and gentlemen. This has been Beyond the Vote. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been a fun little discussion. Uh, we learned a lot. We learned about uh, Donald Trump uh, has never met a loss that wasn't a cheating scandal, and uh, we've also <laughs> we've learned we've learned that Ben Carson uh, doesn't value the Electoral College anymore, or, I guess. Or, or apparently the Constitution, since that's right there, <laughs> evidently. And then we, and we've also learned that uh, that politics these days, man, Paul Ryan. Uh, I think he's going to be. Uh, the next Republican nominee. Do you want to know how you fix the Electoral College, by the way? Uh, I would love to know. Uh, you expand... The, the number of seats in the House of Representatives was never supposed to be static. Ever, ever, ever. And in fact, I think as recently as the 30s, we expanded the number of seats in the House. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't realize yeah. we never re- expanded them. Yes, there is yes, precedent it's been for done it. a number of times. And we've been sitting on that for almost 100 years, and that's not realistic in line with the uh, with the population growth in this country, we need to expand the number of seats in the House of Representatives. That would expand the number of opportunities for people to get delegates in the Electoral College, and that would help fix the problem. I think so, uh, but you know, I don't think it's 
that big of a problem currently, but yeah, I think over time it will become more so of one. And and it, it's going to be that's probably is going to be a big takeaway from the conversation. Uh, so so yeah, poverty. Uh, it'll be interesting. Uh, maybe one one of these days we'll have another Reagan or Kemp. All right, folks, again, that puts the wraps on this episode 8 of Beyond the Vote. Don't forget, follow us on Twitter. It's at Beyond the Votes. That's votes plural. I'm on Twitter at The Riley Guy. Scott's on Twitter at Rifen. You can also hear him on 1440 WGIG in the Brunswick, Georgia area. Each or on the iHeartRadio app. Which is the way I always listen. So yep. uh, it makes it very simple and easy. And make sure you're subscribed to the show. If you like politics and you know someone who does, email them a copy. This show can be found also at RileyBlanton.com. That's easy to remember. Uh, thanks as always. We'll see you guys next week. And remember, conservatism isn't quite dead. Not quite. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's just a little on the edge. <laughs> we'll see you guys next week. <laughs>